Happy Halloween from the Jury Room Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Oracle Network. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the Jury Room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. We have already discussed the tragic happenings of two famous cults on this show, Heaven's Gate and Jonestown. Today, we are exploring a lesser known, but more recent cult, Angel's Landing. Angel's Landing contained elements of both of these more famous groups. The groups remained small and moved from state to state to avoid detection. Just like Heaven's Gate, their leader, known by the alias Lou Castro, claimed to be a thousand-year-old angel, similar to Marshall Applewhite. The control over the group Lou Castro exhibited came from the promise of acceptance and community, similar to the message of Jim Jones. Lou didn't rely on the interpretation of scripture or of any particular sect of Christianity. Instead, he offered himself. He claimed to have magical powers and the ability to tell you when you were going to die. If a member of the group passed away, it was with the expectation that they would come back and die they did. This is the story of the Angel's Landing Cult. The conman, known later in life as Lou Castro, was born as Daniel Urave Perez on November 26, 1959, in the southern Texas town of San Paricio. Knowledge about his youth is limited, but records on Ancestry.com indicate his parents were named Korea Concia Urove and Elias D. L. Vaquel Perez. Daniel Perez may have served in the United States Navy and worked for a short time as an airplane mechanic. Though these details are difficult to confirm, Perez was essentially a ghost until the mid-1990s. He met a woman named Patricia or Trish Gomez while living in Texas in the mid-1990s, and his relationship with her appears to have been a catalyst for change in both their lives. She would go on to play an important part in his future schemes. According to court testimony from Perez, he and Trish started a partnership that included, at least initially, a sexual relationship. Trish was in her late teens when she met Perez, who was in his mid-30s. Trish was likely not the first time Perez entered into a sexual relationship with a teenage girl, and it certainly wasn't the last. 
His preference for young girls soon landed him in hot water. Shortly after Perez met Trish, in about April of 1996, he met a mother of two, referred to in court documents as Marilyn. Marilyn was in the middle of moving her two children, a young son and a 14-year-old daughter named Michelle, to a new home in Amarillo, Texas. Being the kind and generous guy he is, he offered Marilyn and her kids a place to stay during the transition. But as soon as he had them in his grasp, Perez began raping and sexually abusing young Michelle. Police caught wind of the abuse and charged Perez with rape. After a swift conviction, Perez was set to be sentenced. And if all had gone according to plan, the tragedies of Angel's Landing might never have happened. But fate intervened. While en route to the sentencing, Daniel Perez was allegedly abducted by four uniformed men. Police found his wallet on the body of a dead man in Mexico. And the rape conviction was thrown out because Perez believed to be dead. Except he wasn't. Perez said years later that Trish found him battered and bruised on the side of the road after the abduction and took him back to Corpus Christi, Texas, where she nursed him back to health. After that, they left Texas for a while, and Perez began going by a new name, Lou Castro. It is unclear whether or not he reeled Trish in with stories of his mystical, angelic powers, but by the summer of 1996, the man now going by Lou Castro was certainly spinning his story of divine providence. Relocating to North Dakota, Castro met a 15-year-old girl referred to in court documents as K.L. Allegedly, the now 36-year-old Castro convinced K.L. that he was significantly younger than his actual age. He charmed the young girl and quickly began sleeping with her. It is at this point in Castro's story where he begins divulging information about his special powers. According to KL, he told her he had the power of clairvoyance, that he could see the past, present, and the future. As if that weren't impressive enough, he also said he could make it rain and speak with the dead. For nearly three months, Castro stayed at KL's house off and on until he was arrested by law enforcement, presumably on statutory rape charges. According to later testimony, authorities deported him to Mexico, but the events surrounding this are murky. He was going by an alias, but he was a U.S. citizen, except if he were to divulge his true identity, he would have to go back to Texas to face the consequences of his earlier rape charges. 
regardless of what happened, Castro managed to slip through the clutches of law enforcement. He went back to Corpus Christi, Texas as Lou Castro and maintained a long-distance relationship with teenage K.L. for the next year. All the while, he and Trish were expanding their family. After moving into a Corpus Christi apartment complex, Castro met and wooed a divorced woman named Mona Griffith, who lived with her two children, son Cody and daughter Lindsay, who were both teenagers. Within months, the Griffith family moved with Castro and Trish into a larger apartment, and they began a communal living arrangement that quickly became transient. The small group bounced around from state to state as the 1990s came to a close. They left Corpus Christi for a house in Wichita, Kansas, and soon after, KL joined the group. Castro, who was by then paying heaps of inappropriate attention to Mona's 14-year-old daughter, Lindsay, managed to alienate KL. After only two weeks in Wichita with the group, KL was fed up with Castro's fawning over Lindsay. She went back to her home in North Dakota to finish school, but Castro quickly followed. He uprooted his group and picked up new members along the way. By 2001, Castro now had a small, devoted cohort of followers living with him in North Dakota. It included KL, Mona Griffith, her daughter Lindsay, Mona's new fiance named Jem, Trish and her new husband, Brian Hughes, and their new baby daughter, Nicole. There was just one problem. The group's bank account was running low. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you were in the group, their money troubles wouldn't last long. They were about to find an opportunity within a tragedy. Sometime in early 2001, Mona and her daughter Lindsay took a plane ride with Jem, who was a pilot. For some reason, Jem didn't log a fight plan before he took off in the small private plane. So when the plane disappeared, authorities had no idea where to search. While search parties struggled to locate the wreckage, Castro and Trish made several trips to a local life insurance broker trying to collect on a $750,000 death benefit taken out on Mona's life just before the plane ride. The beneficiary was listed as her daughter, Lindsay, of whom Trish was supposed to become a guardian in in the event of Mona's untimely death except the life insurance company wouldn't pay up while Mona was still presumed missing. They needed a death certificate. Castro and Trish quickly joined the search parties, and lo and behold, within a few days, they located the wreckage, and they were able to confirm Mona, Lindsay, and Jim had all perished in the crash. Devastated by the loss of his followers, Castro and Trish quickly cashed in on Mona's life insurance 
to soothe their grief before leaving town. Castro led them next to Lee's Summit, Missouri, in the spring of 2001, where the group would expand its ranks once again. While searching for a new place to live in Lee's Summit, Lou Castro began spending time with a real estate agent named Jennifer Hudson. As they spent more time together, Jennifer developed a deep friendship with Castro. He fascinated her with stories of the magical powers he possessed and told her he was actually an angel. According to her daughter, Sarah, Jennifer had a passion for angels and often spoke how angels walked on earth to protect the masses. After she met Lou Castro, Jennifer felt he represented a missing piece in her life. She developed this intense need to protect him, which only intensified when he moved the group from Lee's Summit, Missouri to Wichita, Kansas, three months later. Sarah told Oxygen, quote, My mom had a journal, and she had written how she felt and needed to protect Lou or Daniel. I guess he appeared innocent or as someone who cared too much. My mother was very thoughtful when it came to people, so she felt like somehow she needed to protect Lou. He was very charismatic and quite the talker. He somehow appeared wise." Unquote. Jennifer's obsession with Lou Castro solidified after he left town and her put-together life began to crack. Jennifer had also developed a friendship with Trish, who told her they had chosen their own family and that Jennifer was free to come and join them. The married mother of two began fighting with her husband. According to Sarah, Jennifer finally told her kids that she didn't like being so far away from Lou and wanted to move out to their newly purchased property in Wichita. In June 2001, Jennifer divorced her husband, packed up her belongings, and moved her two daughters. 10-year-old Emily and 17-year-old Sarah out to the initial 10-acre property purchased for Castro's group under Trisha Hughes's name. By spring of 2002, the group had added an additional 10-acre plot and built three other houses onto the property. This brought the complex's grand total to four luxury domiciles. Castro named this commune Angel's Landing. Jennifer Hudson's daughter, Sarah, is the reason we know what little we do about Lou Castro's cult at Angel's Landing. She has spoken freely about her experiences, most recently on the new Oxygen series, Deadly Cults. Her story is chilling. Sarah says that upon initially moving to Angel's Landing, she didn't care for Lou. He tried too hard to impress her and her little sister, Emily. And now for a quick break. Hi, this is Jill, host of the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. Each month, I feature a true crime book by one of my favorite authors, delving into their story. A psychology educator for 30 years who studied serial killers, 
I apply what I've learned doing a deep dive, analyzing and updating the story. Told in trilogies, I follow the threads not tugged on, going into some surprising, bone-chilling directions. Cold cases, homicides, missing persons, family annihilators, cases from history, the stories that fascinate and appall us. Join Murder Shelf Book Club podcast on most major podcast platforms. Like, subscribe, and follow, and see what I'm pulling off the Murder Shelf next. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. What finally won her over was the barrage of enthusiasm for Lou shown by the woman she trusted. Like her mother and Trish Hughes. Sarah described Trish as the second in command and a maternal figure of the group. Trish trusted Lou and told Sarah she actually witnessed Lou dying and coming back to life. He had real powers, she insisted, and only ever had their best interests at heart. This was a family. Sarah and her sister now belonged to a loving, supportive community. Trusting Trish, Sarah let go of her initial reservations and fully believed in Lou's power as an angel on Earth. Quote, Lou created Angel's Landing and brought more people together. Unquote. Sarah McGrath. Soon after, Castro and his followers moved into Angel's Landing. The amount of unexplained wealth floating around them raised red flags for Sedwick County Sheriff's Deputy Roy Goodwin. A former narcotics officer, Goodwin was trained to look for wealth without an obvious source indicating illicit drug money might be coming in. The residents of Angel Landing drove luxury vehicles that were very noticeable. Corvettes, Camaros, luxury SUVs. Each car had a personalized license plate, like Angel 1, Angel 2, and so forth. The residents of Angel's Landing lived a life of extravagance. Nothing was out of reach, at least from a monetary standpoint. Lou Castro was looked at as a spiritual and monetary provider. If you came to live at Angel's Landing, all your needs would be met, though many of his followers failed to ask. What was the price being paid for this material wealth? Almost immediately following Jennifer Hudson and her young daughter's arrival at Angel's Landing, Lou Castro began sexually abusing both Sarah and Emily. Emily, who was only 10 years old at the time, was moved into Castro's master bedroom. His reasoning? According to court documents from years later, Castro had told them that he was hundreds of years old and often inhibited by one of three different angels, Arthur, Daniel, and the angel of death named Amber, and that the angels needed sex from young girls to survive. He told Emily that without the care of a young, pure virgin, he would die. By January 2002, Castro was regularly forcing himself on Emily. 
and according to her statements, incidents of oral, vaginal, and anal rape happened hundreds of times over the next eight years. Sarah's abuse, on the other hand, was justified by Castro as a means to fix her. He told her the only way she would ever be able to get married and have children was for him to fix her by having sex with her. Sarah's sheltered upbringing, coupled with the fact that all of her close female role models swore Castro had her best interests at heart, convinced her he was telling her the truth. He abused her violently under this guise until early 2009. By early 2003, the Angels' landing bank accounts were getting unfortunately low, and once again, Lou Castro was about to make an opportunity out of a tragedy. On June 26th of 2003, Kansas police were called to Angels' Landing to investigate what looked like an accidental drowning. Patricia Hughes was found floating face down in the shallow end of the complex pool. Sarah's sister, Emily, was soaking wet and holding Trisha's toddler, Nicole. Emily, who was 12 years old at the time, told police that Trish had gone into the pool to save little Nicole and accidentally drowned. Despite a blow to the back of Trish's head, investigators believed the story and officially ruled it an accidental drowning. A few days later, Trish's husband, Brian, collected her $1.24 million life insurance policy and deposited it into the commune's bank account. Their funds sufficiently restored. Things went on as usual at Angel's Landing. Lou Castro bought more luxury vehicles. The group hosted parties and barbecues every weekend, and they continued to grow. Castro started dating a woman named Megan in 2004. Once she became pregnant with Castro's child, she quickly replaced Emily Hudson in his bed. Emily, who was approaching 13 at the time, said later that this rejection felt like she was going through a divorce. While everyone else went on with their lives following Trish's death, her husband Brian Hughes fell into a deep depression. According to Sarah, Brian slept with Trish's wedding photo in the bed with him. She recalled that after Trish's death, Castro began spending more time with Brian. He would tell him that crossing over to the other side, aka dying, was the ultimate goal. And one day soon, Brian would have the opportunity to see his wife again. By 2006, the cult coffers once again dwindled to a few thousand dollars. Castro needed capital to fund his lavish lifestyle. And the day jobs of members like Jennifer Hudson couldn't support the commune at the level they had all grown accustomed to. Castro had worked on Brian Hughes for three years by psychologically manipulating him 
and filling his head with visions of an idealized afterlife with his wife. One day, in mid-2006, the group received word that Brian had died. Brian was an experienced mechanic whom Sarah described as incredibly safety conscious, which is why it is all the more confusing when they heard how he died. During a trip to see a relative, Brian offered to change the oil in a friend's car. While he was underneath the vehicle, the jack slipped out of position. The car fell on top of his body, crushing him to death. While accidents happen, yes, but Sarah later said that she and her sister both believed Brian had kicked the jack out from underneath the car and committed suicide. The care of Brian's daughter, Nicole, went to Jennifer Hudson, as did control of the hefty life insurance payout that was left to the child. The cult bank accounts were once again secure after Brian's death. To Detective Goodwin, nothing about what was happening at Angel's Landing looked right. The wealth, the accidental deaths, the life insurance money, it all looked fishy. He started trying to figure out where Lou Castro had come from, but the task proved to be almost impossible. Goodwin found financial records associated with every single person at the compound, except Lou Castro. The man literally had no paper trail. Goodwin decided the only way to find out who he really was was to collect his fingerprints. He began following Castro, hoping that he might lift a print from a discarded cup or piece of trash. But Castro was careful. Goodwin even went into a restaurant after Castro had eaten a meal and collected all of the cutlery and dishes he used and still could not lift a single print. Goodwin had no choice but to sit and wait for Castro to make a mistake. In September 2008, Lou Castro called Emily and Sarah Hudson together for a bizarre and morbid conversation. He had some sad news. It was time for their mother, Jennifer, to die. Remember, one of Castro's special powers was supposed to be predicting when someone was going to die. So perhaps that's why this conversation resulted in tears and frustration from Sarah and Emily rather than a call to the police. Sarah said she approached her mom and told her what Lou said, but Jennifer brushed it off by saying she wasn't going anywhere, except she was. On September 22nd of 2008, while driving down a backcountry road, Jennifer Hudson ran head-on into a dump truck. She was killed instantly. Detective Goodwin received word of yet another tragic death associated with Angel's Landing Cult. And after looking at the witness statements, it became clear to him that Jennifer ran into the truck intentionally and committed suicide. 
He also noted that within weeks of her death, the Angel's landing bank accounts were replenished with nearly $1 million of life insurance money. Something very sinister was going on there, and Goodwin was determined to get to the bottom of it. He devised a new plan to collect Lou Castro's fingerprints. Goodwin drove out to the Angel's landing property with a packet of glossy pictures under the guise of investigating Jennifer's death. He handed the packet to Castro, hoping he would leave his fingerprints all over the pictures. But to his disappointment, Castro dumped the images on a pool table and used his fingernail to scoot the photos around. Goodwin left empty-handed, but Castro was spooked. Castro decided he needed to find a new home away from Kansas police, and he needed to do it fast. By March 2009, Castro had uprooted the remaining members of Angel's Landing and moved to Columbia, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Little did Castro know, Detective Goodwin was still watching his every move. When the group got to Tennessee, they immediately went about setting up a new home base. For that to happen, Lou Castro needed a new bank account and a new name. Goodwin noticed bank transfers to a Tennessee financial institution and was able to obtain the tapes showing Castro in the bank setting up the account under the new name Joe Venegas. Establishing a bank account under a false name is a federal crime, and Goodwin had video proof that Castro had done it. This was their ticket to putting Castro behind bars long enough to figure out his true identity. They went to Tennessee, arrested Castro, and he ended up with a two-year prison sentence for fraud. Now the real work began for detectives, but they were about to catch a big break in the case that would help them put the man known as Lou Castro away for good. Sarah Hudson never went to Tennessee with Castro. She stayed behind in Wichita, where she met a man named Daniel McGrath. As their relationship blossomed, McGrath began to suspect Sarah's relationships with Castro and the other people at Angel's Landing weren't exactly healthy. After witnessing an abusive phone conversation between Sarah and Castro, McGrath had taken the phone and told Castro never to call her again. Then he asked Sarah point blank if Castro had sexually abused her. And for the first time in her life, Sarah spoke freely about the years of abuse she endured at the hands of Lou Castro. And now, for a quick break. Hi, my name is Jules, and I'm the host of Riddle Me That True Crime, which focuses on unsolved murders and disappearances, where I often do so with the help of family members, where they come on and tell their stories, and oftentimes with experts. I'll usually present the story over a multi-episode story arc, Sometimes I'll do one-off episodes like one I covered recently, 
which was the tragic and very suspicious death of 14-year-old Noah Donahoe in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So Noah went off on his bike one day. It was Father's Day, the 21st of June, 2020, amidst lockdown. He rides his bike and he's going to Cave Hill Park to meet friends and something along the route causes him to get derailed. He ends up in an area that he's unfamiliar with and has no business being in, given that he's a Catholic schoolboy and this is a loyalist area. So it takes just under a week until Noah's body is discovered. He's discovered unclothed in a storm drain, and the PSNI comes out with a preliminary conclusion of accident. Mind you, this is before an autopsy has been done to determine manner of death or cause of death, and also before the forensics has been run. The family is screaming out for justice. I really hope you will join me on Riddle Me That True Crime, which you can listen to anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Once Sarah was finished telling him everything, Daniel McGrath opened his laptop, went to the FBI website, and sent them a long, detailed email about what his girlfriend had just described. Detectives immediately followed up. Goodwin interviewed both Sarah and Emily, recording every detail of this disgusting abuse and manipulation they had suffered. But Emily dropped a bombshell that would keep Castro in prison for the rest of his natural life. She helped detectives pin him for the murder of Patricia Hughes. By this time, police had also learned Castro's real name, Daniel Perez. Beginning in early 2015, Kansas prosecutors took Daniel Perez to trial on at least 28 criminal charges, including first-degree murder, rape, sodomy, providing false information on life insurance forms, and sexual exploitation of a child. Sarah testified about the prolonged sexual abuse she experienced and witnessed at Angel's Landing Commune. But her younger sister, Emily, put the nail in Perez's coffin. According to Emily, Everything investigators initially believed about the 2003 drowning death of Patricia Hughes was a lie. Perez had forced the then 11-year-old girl to be an accomplice in what was actually a murder. Emily testified that Perez sat her down and told her he had predicted Trisha's death and that Emily needed to be there when she died. When Emily told him she didn't want to be there when Trish died, he told her he would bend time for her so she could be there and be somewhere else simultaneously. The plan was simple. He told Emily to go and hide in the pool house with Trish's two-year-old daughter, Nicole, and not come out for 20 minutes. After the 20 minutes was up, she was supposed to jump into the pool with the girl and make themselves wet. Then she was to call 911 and tell dispatchers that Trish had jumped in the pool to save the little girl 
and had accidentally drowned after hitting her head. The 20-minute window gave Castro, a.k.a. Perez, enough time to get to a nearby car dealership and establish an alibi. Emily testified that after she went into the pool house with the little girl, she heard a scream and a splash. Minutes later, Perez opened the pool house door. He was soaking wet and out of breath. The testimony was riveting and bookended by allegations of extreme sexual abuse. Perez pled not guilty and took the stand in his own defense, systematically denying every allegation and discrediting every witness. He did an interview with Dateline during the trial where he denied ever having sex with underage girls or saying he was an angel. Everyone was of age and just having a good time, he told the host. His supposed angel personalities, Arthur, Daniel, and Amber, were made up. He simply didn't like people using his name when they had sex. So they were free to call him whatever they wanted. Nothing he said was convincing, and the jury found witness testimony much more believable than Perez's flat denials. In March of 2015, the jury convicted him of 28 charges and sentenced him to two life sentences plus 406 months in prison. He won't be eligible for parole until he is over the age of 135. Unless Daniel Perez does turn out to be a thousand-year-old angel, the cult leader and child rapist will die in prison where he belongs. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.